This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Favalli, coming at you, as always, with my super-duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome-times-awesome, fantabulous, spectaculario, doesn't think that Joe Ingles is as good as Carmelo Anthony co-host Andrew D. Bailey. That's just going to be my go-to, is going to be... Joe, uh, Joe Ingles slander on behalf of Andy when I can't think of any good um, intros. Last time it was topical. This time my mind just forgot what it was doing. Anyway, before we get to our Western Conference over-unders, I just want to continue reminding, begging, imploring, and pleading with everyone to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. We are available wherever you can get your podcasts as well. Subscribe there. But iTunes can really help us, even if you're not using it for the podcast and you have access to it, please rate and review and subscribe again to us. Uh, you can steal your family and friends' phone. I also am at the point, and I believe Andy is as well, where we really appreciate it if you throw out general recommendations, whether it's tweeting out the podcast. Um, you can quote something smart that Andy said, or you can quote something dumb and stupid <laughs> that I said. I say a lot of dumb and stupid things. Um, just any way to really help continue sharing this podcast, helping get the word out. We love that we have actual listeners, but we are continuously trying to grow as we plan the future of the pod. As usual, you can also get 15% off at the NBA Math Shop. That is nbamath.com slash shop, promo code Benno, B-E-N-O, easy enough to spell. Um, One other housekeeping note before we start the over-unders, we are going to try and keep this pod noticeably below the two-hour podcast that we did last time. Nothing against the Western Conference teams, who uh, Andy and myself both agree were super tough to pick the over-unders for, but we have other stuff that we want need to do, and we don't anticipate that everyone has two-plus hours to listen to cast. So if that ever happens where you think they're too long or you need us to shorten them down, you don't hesitate to – please don't hesitate to give us feedback, but I just wanted to throw that out there. And here's hoping that after me saying this, we don't end up going for another 120-plus minutes. Now that I've been done rambling for a little over two minutes, though, we get to the question everyone needs to know before they can go about the rest of their week and begin their weekend as you listen to this on the Friday or over the weekend. Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Um, not sure how I feel about consistent Joe Ingles slander via me. I don't even know how to explain it happening on this podcast. I'm just going to have to start screaming lies during every intro, I guess. I think that makes sense because anyone who follows you or listens to this podcast at all knows that that would be the opposite of anything you'd say. They also <laughs> should know that we're both the opposite of Joe Ingles slander, who is basically... He's my podcast spirit animal. That's that's who Joe yeah. Ingles is. He should 
I don't know how we make this happen, but he should probably like co-host every other episode or something. Yeah, he should definitely come on here once, and he can tell us how much he hates list, uh, listening to other people who don't know about basketball talk about basketball. I would be all for it. I'd be for it too, but I'd probably only be able to sit through a few episodes of it before my ego was completely just beaten into <laughs> the ground. So, of course, it's always appropriate for us to talk about Joe Ingles, but even more so today because we're going to start with the Utah Jazz. We're actually going to go in reverse alphabetical order. So if we wax long um, on some of these teams, it's fine because we cut them short in earlier episodes where we've covered a bunch of teams. So jumping right into the Jazz, 48.5 is their over-under total set by Vegas. Um it's excruciating for me to even look at. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel good one way or the other on this pick. I ultimately fell um, on the over side of the coin. Where are you? Oh, I was on the over side of the coin. I, I actually feel relatively comfortable about it. The over unders are always tough, but the Jazz had the best net rating in the NBA after the All Star break last year. We've talked, at least, especially you. Uh, ad nauseum about their defense their offense never really even hit its stride during that post all-star tear and i would hazard that they still need more shot creation on their end and i think i've talked about that or written about it too many times at this point but you have grayson allen showed some stuff in summer league i don't think he'll ever be the guy that pulls up off the dribble you don't want ricky rubio being the guy that pulls up off the dribble but to just have that extra ball handler um with grayson allen maybe someone who can make sure that there are fewer jay crowder heat checks off the dribble throughout games maybe dante exum turns into that guy and he might be the wild card for their offense i think that's the kind of the biggest concern for them is finding that player and if that's your concern when you have a defense like theirs and when your primary option is is Donovan Mitchell who is just ridiculous and both good on and off the ball as we churned through some spot up numbers or you did on Twitter um the other day I just I, I that's my one concern for them and I don't think it's enough in the playoffs yeah that's that's going to be a problem but when you look at the regular season if they all stay healthy this to me is pretty clearly a 50-win team, particularly the last thing I'll say, if they can get to more of those Jay Crowder at the four minutes, or even Tabo Cephalosha at the four. If you pull Derek Favors and then you run lineups with Ingles and Crowder and Gobert, um, Mitchell, and maybe even Cephalosha instead of Ricky Rubio in some of those combinations, those are going to be some pretty statistically dominant lineups. And to me, again, if they stay healthy, they're pretty clearly a 50-win team. Yeah, I think getting to those smaller ball lineups is is going to be huge. And I would be surprised if Derek Favors plays more than like five or six minutes a game at power forward. I, and then he'll probably play, I don't know, close to 20 as the backup center, maybe. Um, his minutes are going to be low 20s just because I think Quinn Snyder loves those small ball lineups. Um, the numbers obviously love those small ball lineups. They were dominant when they had Jay Crowder at the four last season. And I actually looked up. Um, their big season turnaround started on uh, January 24th when they beat the Pistons in overtime. They were ridiculous from that point on. And I, t I, I looked at lineups, five-man lineups that played at least 150 minutes from that date until the end of the season. The number one lineup in the league over that stretch, Ricky Rubio, Donovan Mitchell, Joe Ingles, Jay Crowder, and Rudy Gobert. So it's that small ball lineup we just talked about. 
number two is the Sixers starters, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Number three is the Jazz starters, Rubio, Mitchell, Ingles, Favors, Gobert. So they have a couple lineups that really clicked in in the second half of the season. And I think a big part of that was it just took Ricky Rubio some time to adjust. And it took him a little bit of time to figure out how to play with all three of those non-shooters in Rubio, Favors, and Gobert on the floor. And, and the fact that Rubio turned into a shooter in the second half of the season um, certainly helped that as well. And that's that's been something that he's done the last two years. If he could ever have a year where he was a consistent shooter from start to finish, I, I think it could be sort of a transformational type of a season for him. But um, long story short, I think they figured out how to play with each other somewhere around the middle toward the end of January. And, and I think that's a big reason why they brought this whole team back is so they could continue to build on everything that they they seem to have figured out in the second half of the season. The Jay Crowder at the four lineups played almost a thousand possessions together last year, according to cleaning the glass plus 13.5 points per 100 possessions. They outscored their opponents by the thing that interests me though. And I think a lot of people forgot because he was injured. Tabo Cephalosha spent over 1100 he- possessions at the four last year, during which time the jazz were a plus 5.1 points per 100 possessions What's significant there to me is this came at a time when the Jazz were dealing with other injuries and before they hit their stride. I'm wondering how you feel then about, what if you took that Jay Crowder small ball lineup and you took out Rubio, just made Donovan Mitchell the the point guard and threw in Cephalosha there, and now you have Ingles and Crowder and Cephalosha plus Mitchell and Gobert. I think that's the lineup I really want to see in Utah. I think they're going to do more with Donovan Mitchell as if not like a true point guard, at least the de facto point guard in situations like that. Um, I think the long-term vision still for Quinn Snyder, he talked about this when he was first hired by the Jazz, is positionless basketball. And and like you said, those lineups with maybe Cephalosha and Crowder, those could be stifling defensively. Those two guys and Gobert. Ingles is a good defender too. I mean, that's... Is he though? <laughs> I didn't want to go there. Um but yeah, it's uh, they they have some really interesting combinations at their disposal this season. They're going to have two or three guys too. This is a thing that's been the case with the Jazz for the last couple of years too. Is they'll have two or three guys that would get rotation minutes on I think a bunch of different teams in the NBA this season. They're just really deep. Um, it's one of the reasons they've been able to survive all the injuries they've had in the last two seasons is because they can just kind of plug solid players in whenever somebody goes down. So. Even if they do uh, deal with a couple injuries here and there, I, I think they can still beat that 48-and-a-half that Vegas set them at. Do you think, and maybe this is too deep cut, but do you think that Dante Exum and Ricky Rubio should ever see the floor together? Um, If Rubio is the, the guy he was from January 24th to the end of the season, I, I think that would be fine. Um, Do you know what their offensive rating was in the very, very, very small amount of time those two spent on the court together last year? I'm going to guess it's sub 100. It's 81.5. <laughs> How 27, many minutes? 27 possessions, which I, is, again, beyond small. But I just, I, I guess like you were saying, though, if Ricky Rubio was going to shoot kind of like he did to close the season, that might make it a little easier. Or maybe... All of a sudden, Dante Exum just emerges with this spectacular floater, or maybe he hits some threes next year. He was better as a three-point shooter than I thought he'd be as a rookie, and it's kind of trended downward ever since then. He's 
be even that good. Um, this is this is kind of a crazy thing to rely on, but it's it's just almost anecdotal. There was a video of him playing with some NBA NBL guys in Australia, and he had a dribble pull up off the screen, a three. Um, if he ever adds a dribble pull up, I mean that would that would do wonders. Well, that's what this team is missing, right? Is that guy, and if he turns into him, something like that. Last year, here's the thing about Exum. <laughs> I, I feel like I've been one of his staunchest defenders basically since the day he was drafted. And he had an historically bad uh, rookie season. I, I think his defense was better than the numbers would suggest. But overall, his impact, um, at least statistically, it was not good. And I wrote an article on him for Bleacher Report. Or I think it was maybe right after his rookie year. His path to the NBA was was literally unprecedented. Other teenagers who who made the jump um, from overseas to the NBA had generally played in a professional league for a year or two before they came over. He went straight from Australian high school to the NBA, which is, and that's a bigger leap than most American high school guys made when they were coming to the NBA. So his learning curve has taken some time, but I think in those, in the, those 14 games he appeared in the regular season and then the playoffs, we, we finally started to see maybe a glimpse of what he can be. He still wasn't hitting threes, which is what we were just talking about, but his true shooting percentage was almost 57. Um, he basically tripled his win shares for 48 minutes from last season. He, he doubled his box plus minus. I, I think there's still a chance that he can be pretty good. Um, if he takes another step forward this season, that would obviously help them reach their potential too. He also cleared between playoffs and regular season, which I believe was a total of 24 appearances he made this year he shot better than 65% at the rim, which is by far and away as a combined mark is a, not a career high. He shot 73% there as a rookie, uh, but it was better than his finishing as a, I I guess a third year player, but it was really his sophomore season when he was, he almost never shot at the rim as a rookie too. So, I mean, his rookie year, 12 and a half and 12 and a half percent of his attempts came in that zero to three feet range last year, almost 43% came in that range. So you're that I think that's a big thing you've identified there. He's also the past two years as well, between ten and sixteen feet, he's been okay. He's not taking a ton of his shots there. I think it's like under four percent in each year and a to, like or close to under three percent. Um he's still I combined and I'm just I'm eyeballing this right now, looking at the numbers, he's he's around forty five percent from that range on average, which really isn't he's not taking a lot of shots from there, but if he can kind of get into that floater area or and do things like that, uh, that maybe there's hope for him. Yeah, on, the, on, on his jump shot. I mean, not just hope in general because he's yeah. already a very good defender. Yeah, and then if anybody, I mean, I think the defense that he had on Harden has been talked about by a bunch of different people, but that was pretty eye opening for sure. Um, I feel like we've already exceeded our self-imposed mandate that we gave each other before the podcast. We've, we've gone a little long on the jazz, but that's why we went reverse alphabetical order. Um, so that the Spurs can get the same treatment. Yeah. You ready to move on to the Spurs? Yep. 43 and a half. Um, this one, I actually feel fairly confident in taking the over. Um, a lot of people have made this point, so I'm not saying anything uh revelatory here but they won how many games did they win last year 47 or 48 47 yeah okay so they won 47 games they lose danny green tony parker and kyle anderson i think i think green and anderson obviously helped get them to 47 wins i'm not sure parker did um 
but I think they retained a good chunk of that core that won 47 games, and now they're adding DeMar who, while at, at times he's probably slightly overrated, he's still a really, really good player. And I think Popovich is going to get things out of him, especially defensively, that, that maybe no other coach has. So I would not be surprised to see them clear this 43-and-a-half fairly comfortably. I, I think they'll probably push toward 50 this season. I, I, I'm kind of with you there. They'll miss – Defensively, they lost three of their best defenders in Kyle Anderson, Danny Green, and Kawhi Leonard, which is probably an under-talked-about <laughs> point. Um, their spacing is going to be a problem. When you look at their projected starting five of Murray, DeRozan, Gay, Aldridge, and Gasol, those five combined for 205 made threes last year. Not only did not nine players cleared that mark on their own. Nine players hit at least 205 threes. Joe Ingles hit 205 threes. And I made this comparison. I think you even tweeted it out. The Spurs' entire starting lineup basically brings the three-point volume of Joe Ingles, which, crazy. which could be a problem. I kind of just want Dwayne Wade to sign there at this point so that they can never take a three-pointer again <laughs> and still have like a top 12 or 13 offense. That's where DeMar DeRozan's a shot creator, though. And maybe he shoots better from three in San Antonio. I could actually see him shooting less from three. In San Antonio, kind of like what's happened with Aldridge over the past couple of years. I don't know what what the offense overall is going to look like, but I still expect them to be able to cobble together a good enough defense. Murray is incredible on the defensive end. Um, You have Aldridge has always been a little bit better on that side than people talk about, particularly when he plays the center spot. I... I I pick the over as well, and it's, it's an easy over for me, but I also am a little bit lower on the Spurs. Other, This is more just, this is more blind Spurs faith than normal for me is basically what I'm getting at because they, they did lose, again, three of their top defenders, and I, I think that could be um, an issue for, for them. If, if they don't have a top-tier defense, I don't know that we can look at them and say that they're it's because they have a top-tier offense. I don't look at this roster and get that vibe. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see what he can do, uh, Popovich, to make up for that loss of defense that you just referenced. I think this would be an interesting thing to study, and um, maybe I'll do it if I ever get some free time in the next few days. But I wonder what playing for Popovich in the Spurs does for um, just the typical player's defensive box plus minus. I feel like a lot of them see a pretty significant spike. Uh, when they go there. And I'm, I'm very curious to see if that happens with DeMar DeRozan. Um, I think he's, I mean, he's the biggest newcomer and that's the one I'm mostly thinking about here. So that'll be very, very interesting for me to pay attention to. When, uh, when, De- when LaMarcus Aldridge first signed with the Spurs, didn't you think he would take more threes? I did. I remember thinking that. And I think it was because it wasn't too far after the Spurs to me were a big part of the and then as soon as started doing it, it seemed like they decided to change course. Um, and I know a lot of people have talked about how maybe they're just trying to expose a market inefficiency and, and they'll just be lethal from the mid-range and make up for some points there. Um, I'm just not sure. In, until I see it, I'm not going to be sure that's a small way to they're going to lead the league in shots from two-point shots that are deeper than 16 feet, wouldn't you think? 
Oh, by far. Because <laughs> Aldridge and DeRozan could basically be one and two. They there. attempted I mean, they- more than uh, more mid-range shots than I think six teams between them last year. Yeah, so they're gonna they're gonna be number one easily. I'm gonna be very interested. You you mentioned um, earlier, it'll be fun to see them do that and still pull off a top twelve to thirteen offense. I'm not sure they can get there. Where would you predict that they finish offensively? I guess if I'm saying they're a fifty win team, that it's gonna be hard for them to get to that without being. Well, they have uh, to be elite on one. My point was they have to be elite on one end of the floor. Yeah, and it's not. I just don't. I don't necessarily look at their roster and think it's going to be defense, but it's really hard for me to say it's going to be offense. They were 17th last year. They cratered whenever Lamarcus Aldridge was off the floor. DeRozan, I guess, helps, but doesn't really aid your spacing either. I think it's going to end up being roughly the same. Maybe they're able to do like 14, 15, 16, and and that'll be good enough if they're going to be one of the top five defensive teams are they going to be one of those top five defensive teams though that that seems to really be the question you have faith that pop will kind of turn the rosen defensively and maybe he will uh rudy gay at the speed the spurs play at he can be okay defensively yoko purtle jacob purtle is going to be interesting at the five minutes there the way the spurs play he should be a defensive asset for them as well it's just there are a lot of there are a lot of question marks there and are they going to play Lonnie Walker real minutes? That could become an issue for their defense as well, but they might need his offensive shot creation. We just don't know. Are we both pretty clearly in agreement, though, that they're going to have a better defensive rating than offensive rating when you look at the rankings, or do you think it could go the other way? I'm going to guess they'll have a better defense. Um, but like you said, when you just look at the roster, there's now that Kyle Anderson and Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard are gone, um, there aren't many names that really leap off the screen. I, I think a lot of people have made the point that Aldridge is, is a little better defensively than his reputation would suggest. I think this, the same is probably true of Pau Gasol. He's not super athletic at this point in his career, but I think he's a smart defender. DeJounte Murray might be the best defensive point guard in the league. So if you, you've got you've got a good Chris start. Chris Paul just there. flopped somewhere. Desperation. <laughs> Great point. Um, you've got a good start at the point of attack, is what I'm trying to say. Who? I guess I said hopefully DeRozan's a better defender. Um, I think Rudy Gay can be a good positional defender, but again, he's going to have some athletic issues. And yeah, he's you're going to play him at the three exclusively. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's <laughs> when you just look at the roster, it's a little bit harder to, to see why I have more faith in their defense, but uh, other than the fact that they've just always been good as long as Pop is there. Um, it would be interesting to look back and see how many non-top-10 defenses he's had since he's been the head coach of the Spurs. I, I think maybe the system is just strong enough that you can plug guys in who are at least reasonably athletic and, and still be okay defensively. Do you think DeRozan's three-point volume is going to go down in San Antonio? That's an interesting question, too. Because like like we just said earlier, we both thought Aldridge's would go up, and it didn't. Um, yeah, Pau Gasol had him beat in three-point attempts per 36 minutes last year and that's not by a, neither that's, of them shot too many powers at 2.4 per 36 and Lamarck soldiers at 1.3 but that kind of screams not enough and yet DeRozan we talk about his uptick in volume last year it's overstated because he shot 31.2 percent by the end of the season his 
hot stretch kind of went off, but he was off. He was at 3.8 attempts per 36 minutes last year, a career high, but that's not exceptional volume. And when you throw in Jajante Murray, he was at, he didn't even average one three point attempt for 36 minutes last year. And maybe if I had, maybe let's dilute it down this way. The Spurs need who on offense to shoot the most threes in their starting lineup. I, I would guess Rudy Gay. Um, what did he shoot last year? 31.4% from three on 3.5 attempts per 36 minutes. His career three-point percentage is below average, too. It's 34.3. He, he has had a couple years. He had a 37% season, 16-17. He had a 39, almost 40 in 2010-11. Um, <laughs> but... I mean, they, they have guys that you would think could shoot threes. Like Rudy Gay could shoot more threes. Aldridge could shoot more threes. DeRozan could. Um, it just seems like they're doubling down on the mid-range thing. And maybe maybe this is all just a giant swerve and all those guys are going to shoot more this season. They, they have surprised us. It would be the- big if DeJounte Murray could shoot threes at all for them. If he's able to uptick his three-point volume, that's just huge unto itself. Because if you're not going to have anyone jacking like six per 36 minutes or something like that, you'd at least like to have your starters across the board at three per 36 minutes apiece. Wouldn't you say he's the guy least likely to take off, though, of those starters? He was nine for 34 on threes last season, 26.5%. He did shoot 39.1% on 23 attempts as a rookie. Attempts. I mean, he's 18 of 57 in his career. Um, Someone needs to shoot more threes on this team, though. Patty Mills will be out there jacking, but I'm with you. I, I think, I, I think other than Murray, all four of those other starters should take more more threes than they have in the last couple of years. It just, I don't know if they will. <laughs> Who's going to between Gasol, Aldridge, Murray, and DeRozan hit the most three pointers next year? Maybe it's DeRozan by way of sheer volume, but it could also be close. Gasol, Murray, who? Aldridge and DeRozan. Yeah, I would probably say DeRozan. It's fair. After him? Shot attempts, DeRozan or Aldridge? What's that? Who's going to lead him in shot attempts, DeRozan or Aldridge? I'm going to say DeRozan. So would I. He should have more control over the offense, but I guess we'll... We'll have to see. Just you could play him off the ball more, but it's easier to do that with Aldridge and pick and pop situations with DeRozan initiating those sets. They're a very, very interesting team. Um, We're both at the over and we just spent way too (laughs) much time um, kind of just doubting them. But I still think think they'll get to the over. I think it's just a general trust in the system that's been so good for so long. Retain Kawhi Leonard. Yes, that trust. (laughs) All right, the Sacramento Kings are set at 25 and a half. Um, I have the under, but I'm going to let you talk first on this one. Yeah, I have the under as well. And they're, to me, pretty clearly going to be the worst team in the Western Conference, which is fine, even though they don't have their first round pick. I just didn't see a whole lot from them this offseason. And by that, I mean anything that informed any sort of direction um, or was a sign that they are as an organization changing in a positive way. Signing Bailita was dumb. It was just dumb. (laughs) Money's not bad, but you don't need him. He's 30 years old and you have all these other 
bigs. And Bielitz is a big, but you signed him to play small forward. He was a plus there for Minnesota last year. But to me, that had more to do with the starting lineup. It happened when they pulled Jimmy Butler and put him in, and that lineup was fire against some weak competition for a while. And then the other lineup he played a lot in as a small forward went up against a bunch of bench units with Carl Anthony Towns in the middle. I just don't see him as a three. And when you also have Bagley and Giles and Labissier and Zach Randolph, I'm not even going to include Willie Cauley-Stein or Costa Kufos because hopefully they don't spend any minutes at power forward. It's just, it's too many bigs, not enough wing prospects by any means. And I get that neither Bogdanovich or Buddy Heald should be viewed as a small forward, but I would have rather have seen minutes with them playing together. And then you have De'Aaron Fox at the one and then whoever in your front court, I would have rather have seen more of that than we're going to, than you throw a, a three-year deal with two guaranteed years at, at Bielitsa. It just didn't make sense to me. And the Yogi Ferrell signing's fine if it doesn't cut into Frank Mason's uh, playing time because I think he could be an important player for yeah, them. Nice. The Garrett Temple move was just whatever. I believe I said this on a podcast uh, previously or two podcasts ago. There's just no direction here. And to not go out and take a, you know, you, you threw money at Zach Levine, you threw money at Bielitsa. It would have made more sense to throw money at Rodney Hood for them, in my opinion. I'm not saying they should have thrown money at anyone, and they're going to have cap space next year, which is great. Uh, they should, it, they would have to jump through a bunch of hoops if they wanted to kind of uh, make, have dual uh, max cap space, but they're going to pre- pretty easily get to 40 plus million dollars. They'll have over 50 million uh, closer to $55 million if they get rid of Willie Cauley-Stein. But there's nothing about their future that I think is going to excite free agents or anyone outside or even inside that organization. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, the combination of Buddy Heald and Bogdan Bogdanovich on the wings is one of the only things about this team that moderately excites me, and I, I don't even know how often they're going to go with that combination. Um, because for some reason, uh, Jaeger never really seemed to trust it last year. Um, I should probably look up how many minutes that duo played before I say that, but I know that Buddy Heald came off the bench for a big chunk of games, and I think he's the most intriguing young player on that team to me still. I, I, I like really? him even than De'Aaron Fox. Yeah. Um, I might go with Bogdanovich over him if you're not going to pick Fox. I'm still there with Fox, though. I like Bogdanovich a lot too, um, but it's really those two guys. I'm I don't really know where I stand on De'Aaron Fox. Um, I think he's a good competitor. He has some athletic pluses to him, but I just there's nothing that really leaps out at me with him. And the same goes for Marvin Bagley. Um, I think he could be a good sort of bad bad team, good stats guy for the next couple of years. I don't know how much he's going to help them win. Um, he won't, but go ahead. <laughs> basically, I'm just I'm just echoing what you said. I, I don't really know what their identity is. Um, and they didn't do anything to clear that up this season. Bogdanovich and Heald actually played a lot together last season. They played 836 minutes. And their net rating, Sacramento's net rating in those minutes was minus 3.1. Um, but now I want to see what their overall was, and that's going to take like two seconds. Um, but even then, it's like play Jackson seven, with those two more. Just there's different looks you could go with rather than signing Bielitsa. Their overall was minus 7.9, so they were significantly better 
when those two guys were on the floor. Um, yeah, play play more young guys with those two. Even, you know, more minutes with Fox, Bogdanovich, and Heald, and just kind of see what you have. But I, I worry that guys like Zach Randolph and Costa Kupis are going to continue to get minutes. Uh, but maybe that was just a last-year thing, and I'm, and I'm being unfair right now. What they really need to do, and I'm not sure that they'll do this, is you have these expiring contracts with Randolph, Shumpert, Kufos. You need to go out there and take one of those – Maybe it's mid-season. Maybe it's maybe it's after next year to where it wouldn't impact. It. No, it needs to happen before the trade deadline next year, where you're offering to take back one of those deals from 2016 that has two years left, and you're going to get a first-round pick or end-or prospect in return because you don't have a first-rounder this year, and that's just a waste at this point. And you have that cap space to work with as well. And so, if you use, let's just say, I'm going to use Shumpert as an example because they Sacramento seems attached to Zebo in some weird way you all of a sudden can take back $20 million in a trade because of your, you have nine plus million in cap space right now, closer to 10. And so you could go out there and pretty easily take back an Evan Turner or be the team that take, takes back Ryan Anderson if the Rockets are going to offer you enough. And to me, that's, that's what you should do. Uh, and that, that's gonna, that might drag down your win total even further. Maybe it doesn't, but that would be a sign that this organization, regardless, is moving in, in the right direction and we'll have to watch and see how some of these young guys kind of develop. Uh, Bagley, obviously, but also Giles and De'Aaron Fox, Bogdanovich, uh, Buddy Heald even still, uh, Frank Mason, just to see kind of how, not even necessarily how they play, although I think that's a big part of it for some of them, but how much playing time are they getting and how committed are, are, the, are the Kings to them in the first place? That's a really smart idea, trading those expiring contracts for one of those bad deals from 2016, which makes me think that it's probably not going to happen. Um, should we move on to the Blazers? Let's do it. Blazers are set at 41 and a half. I took the over here. I, I think people are going a little overboard with the, the sort of doom and gloom Blazers projections. I don't think they're going to be the third best team in the West again. Um, I agree with what a lot of people have said that they were, they kind of ride road one hot streak and then we're exposed in the playoffs against the Pelicans, but they do bring back a core that and really not a core, like basically the entire team plus Seth Curry, who I think was a really good signing for them. Um, a team that just formed 49. I don't really see what's going to drop them eight wins. So over 41 and a half doesn't seem like too big of a stretch to me. Yeah, I'm with, I'm with you there. I was surprised that it was so low as was, uh, CJ McCollum, who yeah. added Damian Lillard when he saw it, I believe. I, it's it's tough for me to get excited about this team. I don't think that they're going to be the number three seed again. And they were so close to the number nine seed anyway. Like that was just how yeah, the Western a- Conference functioned. But I, I, I'm just looking at them and trying to think, where is the upside on the roster? And I would have liked to have seen them add some more. I mean, it's easy for me to say this because they had no money. And that's something we have to remember. I think the Nurkic deal is fine, especially with the way that it's structured. I do like Zach Collins. Having Mo Harkless and Al Farouk Aminu healthy for an entire season together should be good. Nick Stauskas might even end up being a good signing for them because they just need guys who can come out and shoot some threes while not commandeering uh, any possessions. That's what they have. It would not surprise me, though, if Lillard or C.J. McCollum is traded. 
by the February deadline. I don't think the Blazers are going into the season looking to do that and that, but I could see the season turning out in such a way where they're too much of a fringe playoff team when you look at the rest of their Western Conference, and then they decide just to pivot into something different, sort of this quasi-rebuild, which is would explain why their over-under is kind of where it might be. That is the one way I see them not hitting this mark. Otherwise, it's tough for me to think that they would be basically a 500-team or worse. They they seem like they have enough talent on the roster to get to 42 wins. Terry Stotts always seems to piece together the the right defensive scheme. Losing Ed Davis is going to be big, though, in the front court. You have Al Farouk Aminu still. Maybe you can get Harkless some minutes at the four. But Nurkic, to me, isn't a great rim protector. He's more a product of that system. What, how is Zach Collins going to be? Those minutes with him and Ed Davis, the Blazers were great, but I do think Ed Davis was... He was a rangy more than most people knew or gave him credit for as well, looking at the defensive end specifically. And to lose that could wind up being a, a pretty big development for them. Yeah, it does seem like they're banking on Zach Collins' development. And if he's – there was you know people who said they're super high on him last season. And if he's as good as they think he is, that would certainly help their projections. Um I feel like Nick Stauskas is probably a downgrade from Pat Connaughton. Um, I don't know. That's kind of a weird – I mean, I don't think many people care about the difference between Nick Stauskas and Matt <laughs> let's, let's devote an entire podcast to the difference. I do like the Seth Curry signing, um, which I mentioned earlier. I'm just kind of trying to highlight some of the people they added because for the most part, this team is basically the same. I don't know if Anthony Simmons is going to play – at all this season, that's their first round draft pick. I, I was actually pretty high on him. He was a guy that I thought the Jazz might be looking at at number twenty one, but he's probably a couple years away, especially for a team that does have Lillard and McCollum. But like you said, if they if they hit a point in the middle of the season where they realize that this just isn't the core to get it done, and they trade one of those guys, maybe they find some more minutes for a young guy like Simons and and just sort of see what they have in him. But I didn't really think about that. If if there is a chance that they trade one of those guys, which is something that's been talked about for two or three years, that 41 and a half makes a lot more sense. But if they keep this whole team together, like you said, it's they, they should have enough talent to go out and get at least 42 wins. I don't think people understand how important Seth Curry is going to be to this roster. Just You're talking about someone who... He was, I know, he was pretty dang good. Uh, he missed all of last season, but the year before he was good. Right, and we're talking about someone who they, they kind of need a volume three-point shooter who works off the ball that they don't really have. And we're talking about someone who's shooting 43.2% from deep for his career on more than 430 total attempts, 435 total attempts. That's not insignificant. And when you kind of look, Seth Curry isn't a wing, but these like Al Farouk Aminu led your team in three-point attempts per 36 minutes among people who weren't C.J. McCollum or Damian Lillard. That's not, he's come a long way from his sub average clips in years past, but that's not the guy that you want leading you in that department, non McCollum Lillard division. And you, you lose Napier, Napier, that's, that's going to hurt you as well in that department. Same with Connaughton, um, which is why Curry is going to be so important. And you're going to need Mo Harkless to shoot more. Evan Turner clearly isn't going to develop a consistent three point stroke. And if Harkless is going to, he shot 41.5% from deep last year, but you want a guy who's going to take more than 3.4 attempts per 36 minutes. It's just you want these higher volume guys. You're even going to need to see it 
Zach Collins, too. Portland doesn't really have a pick-and-pop option and, and hasn't for some time in the front court. He's that guy, and he was okay in that yeah. role last year, but you're going to need him to not only shoot better on threes or from the perimeter overall, but his volume is just going to have to come up. And, and so there are going to be a lot of guys who are kind of ripped from their comfort zone because his team hasn't changed, but it's also downgraded in some areas as well. And their best case scenario is probably a lateral move from last season. Yep. I agree with all that. Um, there's 96 minutes in the backcourt. I think if they devote like the vast majority of those to just those three guys, Lillard, McCollum, and Curry, that's pretty good. But I think you laid out a lot of the question marks on the other parts of the roster. Um, Myers Leonard is a pick and pop guy, but he hasn't really been able to find the rotation much in the last couple of years, it seems like. So I, I, and I do think that Zach Collins can develop a three point shot. I think that would be very helpful as well. But I, I think you're right. They're going to need something beyond. Now Lillard. tell me your thoughts on Caleb Swanigan. <laughs> Great rebounder. All right, let's move uh, on. <laughs> the Phoenix Suns. Um, yes, that's where we are. 28 and a half. I've got the under here. Um, they're going to be better, I think. I think mostly just because Devin Booker is going to be better. Um, Trevor Reza should help them a little bit. But I, I don't think they're going to be pushing 30 wins better. So this is this is another one that's not super difficult for me. Not super difficult either. They they do look better on paper, but what is the point guard situation going to look like? You don't want to put too much responsibility. What's that? Brandon Knight. Yeah, that's but he's if he's your point guard, you've miscast him. And I get that Devin Booker has become uh better as an on-ball facilitator. Josh Jackson even showed some of this toward the end of Last season, I really like Elia Kobo. I think he's going to be, Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if he'll ever be the best primary option, but he's someone who can do a whole bunch of stuff off the dribble for them. Shaquille Harrison's interesting. I just, you need to figure that situation out because Booker shouldn't be just your primary pick and roll guy or your half court setup man. It just shouldn't be him. The other thing to kind of just look at is the front court is so young. You uh, maybe they'll play Tyson Chandler, but they really shouldn't. Uh, you have Rachon Holmes, you have Aiton, you have Chris, you have Bender. Uh, there's just I, I'm not even sure if you have NBA players at power forward yet. If you're looking at Chris and Bender as power forwards, they're both should probably spend most of their time at the five, and that's definitely not going to happen. The lineups that have Ariza or Josh Jackson as your small ball forward, those are going to be intriguing. I could see them surprising some people in certain games and they should be able to build upon or improve upon rather last year's dead last defensive efficiency finish. Just you look at Mikhail Bridges, you look at Ariza making some improvement from Josh Jackson. I think Elliot Kobo could end up helping him on the defensive end too. If you play them, I don't see them being elite in any one area. Even if you consider Devin Booker, this rising star, which is fine. I think he's, I don't want to say he's become underrated, but people have been so quick to discredit him because of his defense, which is bad. But he's actually, to me, a good offensive player. Not the most efficient, but you've seen his true shooting percentage improve through each of the last three years while his usage rate has gone up. And that's an important indicator. And again, the development we've talked about with his decision-making and passing out of the pick-and-roll, they don't have an identity, though, beyond him. And so this year's kind of about finding that 
second in command or that guy who's ready to make the leap and be their second best player? Is it Aiton? He's a rookie. Is it is it Mikael Bridges? Is he so NBA ready that he's going to be that second in command? Guys, at Josh Jackson. That's what this year is more about to me. I don't know if they'll end up tanking toward the end of the season, but when you look at the West, it's landscape, it's teams. Yes, the Suns are improved. I'm going to have a tough time of someone talking me out of pigeonholing them to one of the bottom two spots in the conference. Yeah, I think I come, I'm basically in lockstep on that last sentence that you said. They're going to be better, but I still think they're going to be the 14th team in the West. Uh, To me, last season was sort of Devin Booker's arrival. I think even guys who are really big on advanced stats started to see what he can provide last season. He basically averaged 25-5-5 on league average true shooting. So that's, I mean, (laughs) that's really, really good. And if you plug his numbers into the season finder, there are very, very few players who are as productive in terms of raw numbers through an age 21 season as this guy has been. And, and I think he's starting to figure out the NBA game. So some of those things, some of those sort of little stuff on the fringes that drags his advanced numbers down, I think that's going to continue to improve this year. Um, I, you know, they do need a point guard. It, in the traditional sense of the word point guard, but I really like lineups where he's going to be the sort of de facto one. And I was playing around with Jacob Goldstein's lineup predictor tool that he came out with yesterday at Jacob E. Goldstein. Booker, Bridges, Ariza, Warren, and Aiton. I, I think that's my favorite for the Suns. You have one through four can basically switch anything. And TJ Warren and Devin Booker, no, they're not good defenders. But at least in terms of size, you can switch everything one through four. Um, Hopefully DeAndre Ayton develops some better instincts as a rim protector than he showed at Arizona. But I think those are the kind of lineups that you need to experiment with, um, at least in the short term, when they don't really have (laughs) – I mean, if you're starting Brandon Knight, like you said, that could be a problem. Elliot Cobo, I think, has the chance to be good, but he's a rookie. Um, and I don't mind having the the ball in Booker's hands as as much as possible with this team. Just let this guy continue to cook and sort of see what you have in him as a primary playmaker. So I think I think they have a chance to do a lot of positionless stuff. You could probably take Josh Jackson and plug him into one of those spots too, and it, still be able to switch one through four. So there's there are interesting things about the Suns, but again, I, not interesting enough for me to think that they're going to rise any higher than 14th. Yeah, and it's I, I do wonder how those lineups will look uh, because you look at last year, and this is just me randomly plucking it out, when they had Devin Booker in a lineup with TJ Warren, Josh Jackson, and then Jared Dudley, who for our purposes is basically their Trevor Ariza, and then you have Tyson Chandler in the middle. They barely went to it. Uh, their offensive rating was an 83.9, and I, I do think you kind of run the risk at times of him if you're going to have Devin Booker lead your offense, you you run that kind of risk of, of the offense falling that that low because he's not uh, he's not supposed to be a primary floor general, and I think he's he's getting there. I, I will say overall, though, with him at point guard last year, the Suns uh, had an offensive rating of 110.4. That's across 193 possessions. 110.4 is is elite. It's just what is it? is there room to grow from there? And maybe there is, you know, maybe I'm under kind of, I'm underselling that. Look, I want to see it more, but I do think looking at this stage of their development, it's kind of in, it's a risk and I'm not sure how much of a productive one it is 
until they have that clear secondary creator for them. You don't want TJ Warren to be your second setup guy. Maybe it's Josh Jackson. It's not going to be Trevor Ariza. Can Mikael Bridges kind of fill that role? He never really did at Villanova. And that'll be kind of something that's interesting to watch because they need that second face-up guy who can also orchestrate pick and rolls and find his teammates. I feel like this is the perfect time to try it. What do they have to lose? I would probably, I'm probably just that bullish on Eliakobo where I think that he should be getting all the point guard minutes. And maybe it's Brandon Knight. Maybe there's a dynamic there to salvage if you're going to use Booker as the as the de facto point guard, the makeshift point guard in this scenario, maybe Brandon Knight all of a sudden helps you there if you put yeah. him off the ball more. If he's if he's healthy, I think he can fit into those lineups that switch one through four too, because he's like six four. So theoretically, he can guard multiple positions too. Um, all right, let's move on to the Thunder. This is another one that was really difficult for me. They're set at fifty and a half. Um, I think this will be our first disagreement of today's pod. I got the under. So this on will be that. your first time being wrong on this pod. That's <laughs> interesting. I basically see them getting to exactly fifty. I think it's I think they're gonna be basically dead on this number that Vegas has set. I'm picking the over because I think a, a couple of things that come into play, Russell Westbrook and Paul George having that second year together, they don't have to worry about the Carmelo Anthony dynamic there. No matter who you plug into his spot, it's not going to be someone who demands the ball unless you just decide to move everybody up and play Dennis Schroeder. Otherwise, I th- whether it's TLC... For like short stints, or at least they should. They're going to have to, because Dennis Schroeder, as much respect as he has for Russell Westbrook, was griping about playing behind Jeff Teague before he was named the starter in Atlanta. And he, he thinks he's like... I mean, he's basically Reggie the Reggie Jackson of just like he in that situation where Reggie Jackson wanted out of Oklahoma city because he felt he should be starting. I could see Schroeder following something along similar lines. Still, I like Diallo, um, who the number 45 pick Alex Abrinas can shoot. And no matter who you put in, whether it's Terrence Ferguson, whether it's TLC, they're Jeremy Grant, they're not going to need the ball. And that's going to be an upgrade for the thunder by default, because then Paul George and Russell Westbrook can kind of go about their business. Um, like they're accustomed to and not have to worry about including guys. I am worried about the fit with Schroeder. A lot of this admittedly does have to do with other teams in the West, I believe conceding ground. I think you look at the Spurs, maybe they got a little bit worse. I think the Timberwolves are going to be worse than they were last year. That's a little bit of a spoiler. The Blazers, the Rockets are going to be worse. That's a team that could give back 10 wins. That could just be floating around somewhere in the Western Conference. And I'm not sure enough teams improved uh, when you look at the Nuggets, yeah, they're in that conversation, but how many more wins are they going to get from the 46? You have the Lakers, of course, but there are also going to be teams that end up tanking midseason or falling off that we're not predicting. Maybe it's yeah. the Clippers. We see them as mediocre, but maybe they just decide, hey, we're going to go for under 30 wins. Dallas, Memphis could be in that situation. That, to me, is going to help inflate Oklahoma City's win total by four more wins from last year. With all this being said, and that's... That's why that's probably an imperfect argument. I'm still concerned about the spacing on this team. And I'm kind of throwing this in here to just look at these stats. When you look at how their wings fared in spot-up shooting, Alex Abrinas was in the 75th percentile, basically. Paul George was in the 93rd, basically. Terrence Ferguson was in the 37th percentile of spot-up efficiency. Jeremy Grant last year, the 35th percentile. 
TLC in Philly was in the 43rd percentile, and Robertson was in the 10th percentile. To make things even worse, you have Dennis Schroeder was in the 19th percentile of spot-up efficiency, and Russell Westbrook, who was in the 34th percentile. Getting these guys, uh, their off-ball offense, it's going to be tough. The spacing is going to be a strain. Patrick Patterson looms large here. Is he going to be healthier following an offseason in which he didn't need surgery? A lot of people have him as their starting four, which is probably the right call if you want to play Nerlens Noel heavy minutes. It could just as easily be Jeremy Grant, I suppose. Uh, but Patrick Patterson, or, or Grant himself, if he can start hitting corner threes, you're going to need those guys to be better from the outside just so that you can kind of make sure your offense comes close close to reaching its apex. Yeah, I think I agree with pretty much all of that. Um I think they're probably better this season. I think there is some additions by subtract addition by subtraction going on um, when they lost Carmelo Anthony. And I think Dennis Schroeder and Nerlens Noel are, are good, especially if they're going to be going against backups. But I, I think you underlined my biggest concern in your argument, and it's just the spacing. Um, if Paul George isn't out there and if Alex Sabrinas isn't out there, it, it really is hard to find consistent shooting for them. And I think Russell Westbrook is just enough of a force of nature that they basically <laughs> make up for that. But I don't know if they, if he makes up for it to the point that they're like into the fifties in, in terms of wins. I think the shooting is going to hold them back to some degree. I think they probably finish a, about where they were last season, somewhere around 48, 49, 50 wins. Um, one thing that's going in OKC's favor obviously is, Andre Roberson was a huge part of that team's defense. And with, when him and Paul George were on the floor last season, the Thunder held opponents to 94.2 points per 100 possessions, which is just extremely low, especially in today's era of inflated offensive numbers because teams have finally realized that three points are worth more than two. Um, to hold the team under – or to hold opponents under 100 points per 100 possessions these days is, is really, really good. And obviously 94 is way below. So if they are close to that defensive level and Roberson is there all season, and I think even Jeremy Grant, if he's the starting four, they could be even better than they were last season. I, and there's an argument for Patrick Patterson to start too, just because, like we've both said now, they need that spacing. But there are going to be times when Jeremy Grant is with Roberson and George, and I think that those lineups are just going to be stifling defensively. So that three man combo 95.1 defensive rating last year the thunder posted with them so, on the court um we talked about this with the spurs like will it be the offense or the defense that carries them and then with the thunder again it seems to me like another team that's going to be carried by its defense if it's able to exceed expectations yeah i would agree especially with noel there i want to see if they can make patrick patterson at the five lineups work or maybe even jeremy grant at the I five like Grant at the five, yeah. Uh, that would be, I don't know how much room there is for that with Noel and Adams. Mm -hmm. And then Patterson as well, if we're looking at Jeremy Grant at the five. He did spend 557 possessions there last year, though, according to Cleaning the Glass. The Thunder's offensive rating during that time, 117.8. And their effective field goal percentage, which takes into account both two-point and three-point efficiency, 58%, which is in the 97th percentile. The defense suffered, gave up almost 110 points per 100 possessions, but I think you need those firebally lineups 
though. I'm not saying they have to be bad defensively, but if they're going to outpace your defense, you just need to have that in your arsenal where you can turn to it and say, hey, we know that this lineup is going to get us buckets. And the thing I'll say about Jeremy Grant at the five, there was only one combination listed among his most used that didn't have Carmelo Anthony at the four. And it was he spent a scant amount of time with Josh Eustace as the power forward instead of Anthony, and the defense was predictably much better. And maybe if you're putting Grant and Patterson together as your 4-5, perhaps that unlocks something different with Robertson and George and Westbrook. Or maybe you go with Robertson, George, and Abrinas for the shooting. Maybe Terrence Ferguson improves as a shooter. Maybe TLC does, too. I think there is more upside to this roster than that meets the eye or is, is on the surface. I'm definitely concerned about their spacing and their offense like you, but I think there are pathways if they're willing to experiment to more potent arrangements. I feel like I just yeah. got really heated about the thunder, which I didn't expect. <laughs> well, like I said, this one is, it's really hard for me. I could, I mentioned this with a bunch of the teams in the Eastern conference pod. I could easily see it going either way. This was sort of an agonizing one. It would for not me. surprise me if they were the second best team in the West this year. Yeah, that wouldn't, that wouldn't really shock me either. There's, um, and we, we could maybe get into this when we give our final standings at the end. But it, again, it's going to be other than the Warriors. It's almost like put names into a hat and pull them out and, and make that my predictions, and I'd feel okay. Um, New Orleans Pelicans are set at forty five and a half. I've got them over. I am I am pretty interested to see how the Julius Randle Anthony Davis front court looks. I I think they. Um, that has a chance to be really, really good. Julius Randle is going to demand a lot of touches and he needs the ball to do some of the things that he does, but I don't think it's quite as dramatic as it was with DeMarcus Cousins. So I think there's a chance that we get Davis that was just so dominant at the second half of last season for most of this season. And that could be a really, really scary team. And I think that makes Anthony Davis, um, a pretty legitimate MVP candidate. I mean, he, he already was last season. Um, one of my, I, I just heard a stat from Josh Lloyd's podcast the other day, uh, locked on fantasy basketball. So he obviously just focuses on fantasy. And he said from, I think it was just post all-star break. Anthony Davis was the number one fantasy player. And the difference between him and number two was the same as the difference between two and number nine. Like he was just wow, absurdly <laughs> productive. And so, and, and we, we talked about this a couple episodes back too. Drew Holiday was really good after DeMarcus Cousins went down too. So they still have basically the bulk of that team that just destroyed the Blazers in the first round of the playoffs last year, plus Julius Randle. I think Alfred Payton can do most, if not all, of what Rajon Rondo did. This, this team is very, very intriguing to me. I'm with you there. I do worry about everything. I agree with everything there. Anthony Davis could could and should end up being a legitimate MVP candidate. This is maybe I've said this too too much already in the podcast. I do worry about their perimeter shooting. They have enough kind of off the dribble creators that maybe it won't matter. Still, Alfred Payton, DeAndre Liggins is not going to shoot 47% from 3. Again, it was on almost no volume. Solomon Hill What's going to happen when you play Julius Randle and Miritich and Davis at the same time? Those minutes are going to happen when you look at their roster. It's just, it's almost unavoidable. And I don't think you have guys 
arguably in Miritich and, and Randall, both of them should be getting 30 minutes a game, and you can't do that while perfectly staggering them. What is it going to look like when Miritich is at small forward? Uh, and what is how is it going to work with Randall and Solomon Hill on the court at the same time? That would really torpedo your spacing. Again, their their offense will be fine, but for some reason I'm more interested in what this team is now capable of defensively, assuming they keep Liggins. Uh, you have Solomon Hill back and healthy. Are you going to be able to get any small ball four minutes out of him? Probably not anymore, and that's probably something that should be talked about because if you have Miritich and Randall, there's not really room for Solomon Hill to get those small ball four minutes. Their their wing rotation is just too much of a question mark, and I don't wonder if we're going to see as a result some some Drew Holiday at the three. Not sure how effective well, yeah, that lineup last year. Yeah, they they he did defend a lot of wings last year, and I'm not sure how sustainable that is. There there is a lot of offensive upside to it if you look at who he would be playing with. Uh, Etwan Moore, Darius Miller, maybe he's in those lineups, and Miller is good. Uh, a, a good spacer for them. There are just a lot of question marks there. And they're another team I could kind of see going either way. That being said, it's Anthony Davis. And the success he had with Miritich last year, I think Randall should mostly help their bench. If he's going to run those second units um, and they allow him to bring the ball up the court and they even give him some time at center, that could really unlock uh, an offensive bomb uh, within them. I don't know that they'll get to 50. I would be a little bit surprised if they got there, but I could see them being firmly entrenched in that 47-48 win territory. Yeah, that's pretty much where I see them finishing too. Um, All right, let's jump to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Here's another... uh, Boy, do I have words about them, but I think (laughs) you should start. (laughs) Another point of uh, disagreement for us here. Um, They're set at 44.5. And I think I'm going to agree with you in the sense that they're they might not be as good as they were last year, um, but I think 44 and a half is just low enough for me to still take the over, just because I think you know they had a weird off season. I'm going to concede that <laughs> pretty easily. The, um, the Anthony Tolliver signing was strange. They finally went out and got a wing, but it was James Nunnally, who I don't I don't think we know a ton about. He's he has spent some time in the NBA, so we can look at it. Um, you know, we can look at his numbers, but I don't think he's going to move the needle. Uh, <laughs> re-signing Derek Rose, like you joked about on Twitter the other day, surprised me at all. Uh, but just the fact that they have Carl Anthony Towns and Jimmy Butler, which I think if, if those two are healthy, it's still objectively a top five duo in the NBA. That, that talent alone is enough for me to think they probably squeak by that 44 and a half. Yeah, I'm going under because it's weird that you would give a Timberwolves team that's not going to have Jimmy Butler after the trade deadline 45 victories. That's, yeah, that's that's a big uh, yeah, that's hanging over this whole debate. That's for sure. That's really I'm oversimplifying it and probably being too rude in the process. I just don't I don't see it. You had uh, you you had one job this offseason. You had I'm about to go on a Hornet style rant right here. <laughs> you had one job, and Tom Thibodeau even said the goal was to get. M- wings who could shoot and defend and you sign Anthony Tolliver a good three-point shooter who really shouldn't be spending any time at the three as I said before I think Minnesota with some of the lineups where they ran B elites at the three was a little was more than a little fortunate actually you bring back Derrick Rose the best part about your offseason was uh your draft getting Diop getting Akoji and I don't know Akoji excuse me I don't know how 
their how much they were going to play because it's Tibbs. And now you're going to inevitably sign Noah when he gets stretched and waved by the Knicks. Justin Patton's never going to see the light of day. Maybe you get uh, Carl Anthony Towns. Maybe get him to sign his max extension. Maybe he makes a leap. He's probably to the point, I don't know that he's underrated defensively, but people are just being a little ridiculous about his value overall. He's so good offensively. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but he he's a fantastic player. And I, I agree with everything you said about Jimmy Butler and Carl Anthony Towns. I don't know how long that duo was going to be together. I don't know what the future, we didn't even mention him, has in store for Andrew Wiggins right now, who couldn't even really hit an open three-pointer last year. It, I, I, I don't look at this team and in this ultra-brutal Western Conference where the Nuggets are going to be better, where the Spurs probably tread water, where you have the Pelicans, where you have the Jazz and Thunder who are going to be just as good, if not better, when you have the Lakers lurking and they're going to be better, I don't know how you pencil the Timberwolves in for 45 victories. I just can't do it right now. Their defense is still, or at least projects to remain bad. And and it was bad last year. I want to reiterate that, is that they couldn't really, they let teams get out in transition basically whenever they wanted. There was like a month stretch where it looked like Minnesota was, defense had turned the corner. And, you know, maybe Wiggins makes a leap there. Probably not. Towns could improve. I wouldn't put it past him. But you don't have a ton of these switchy guys who can keep pace with these lethal face-up scores outside of Jimmy Butler. That player is not going to be Andrew Wiggins, even if he improves on the defensive end. And where do you turn to after that? Are we actually going to see Tibbs lean on a Kogi? Not only Diop, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. But I don't trust this team. I don't trust its spacing. I don't trust where it ended up on the offensive end last year when you look at how many long twos they attempted. Tyus Jones is their second best point guard and he's going to lose minutes to Derek freaking Rose still. These are the 2011, 2012 bulls. And they might as well just go out there, complete a trade for Luol Deng and get it over with. I don't, that's overly harsh, but this is, I don't see it with this team. And if they keep Butler, I would say they might come close to 45 wins might, but I'm not, even if they do keep him and I could see Tibbs being stubborn enough not to trade him. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I 43 for me would be there, not their ceiling, but that's where I kind of see them ending up. And a lot of it again, does have to do with the competition around them. I don't trust, as I think I've made clear any aspect of this roster and this off season to me was just in exercise in front office malpractice. And another reason why we probably should get rid of these coach president hybrid roles entirely. Yeah, it hasn't worked. Um, Really, really, the only one that you could point to as something of a success is Greg Popovich, but he's got R.C. Buford there. And and all these other coach president roles, they do have other guys alongside that help with the um, general manager side of things. But you're right, for the most part, it just it hasn't gone well. And well. even Pop, though, if he was kind of the, They've the done primary some advocate for the Kawhi Leonard trade and that return, DeRozan's... Let's say DeRozan's a top 25 player. The LaMarcus Aldridge extension. Yeah. Like, There's been some weird stuff from them in the last couple Pau of years. Gasol is just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's still a, a plus player, but that contract is just weird to me. Like, 6.7 uh, million guaranteed in the final year, too. And at that point, it's like, what do you do? Do you just pay him to go away? Do you, Or do you just eat it? Because that's an extra well, 10 million? Like they're never going to... 
it, it just looks like they don't want to ever accept like a full rebuild. I think that's what the Kawhi Leonard trade signaled to us. Look, and I'm not going to rail against Pop. I find myself this is probably me trusting too much in the Spurs. I find myself faulting Kawhi Leonard and his people more for how things went wrong. Uh, in San- and I never do that. That's not. I'm typically pro player. Uh, you know, I'm happy Evan Turner, Alan Crabb got paid. Good for them. I don't. I that whole situation. This is the wrong tangent to go on with the Timberwolves. I know. I was just going to ask. Did you see uh, what Frank Isola tweeted today? That he's been Kawhi's been going back and forth for weeks about mm-hmm. how to say his thank you slash goodbye. Did you see the Twitter edit I made to Kawhi's statement? No, I didn't. I'll send it to you. I, I also love the fact that Kawhi put his logo at the bottom of that <laughs> thank you note to San Antonio. His logo that I don't think many people care about. But shout out to him for trying to expand that brand. Yeah, uh, uh, although the Raptors didn't get a Christmas game. Uncle Dennis is going to be mad. <laughs> he, yeah, that's going to be another thing for Kawhi and his camp to rage about. Can you say uh, anything good about the Timberwolves roster? And I I feel like I almost went against them too hard. And if... If they outperform expectations, or uh, so let's put it this way, and I'm doing this for my own benefit too, the Timberwolves will obliterate expectations and make Dan look like a dumbass if, and I'm going to say Andrew Wiggins, I'm not even talking a defensive leap, if he turns into an above average off-ball shooter and they get him in more running situations, maybe they have him set a screen and be used as the smaller role guy. If, if he can hit a good percentage of his catch-and-shoot threes, make some cuts, maybe even initiate the occasional pick and roll so that you can go with the very rare wing heavy lineup. Uh, I don't even know if you have enough wings to do that. That would be the only way I envision them obliterating expectations. I don't even, I, I think if he's even average, they'll, they'll <laughs> oh, pretty good. Because he's been, been meaner than anything I just said. Because <laughs> he's been below average all four years he's been in the league. And, and last year they pushed towards 50 wins. Um, I think their starting lineup will be fine. There are some serious depth issues like you highlighted. One of my favorite things on that lineup tool that Jacob Goldstein came out with. If you look at the, uh, the Wolves starting five, it's projected to have a plus 13.6 net rating. If you swap a Kogi in for Wiggins, it jumps up to 15.3. Wow. So yeah, (laughs) he's not a, helpful player but again it's to me it's just going to continue to come back to uh butler and towns if you look at guys who played at least 500 minutes last season uh jimmy butler's fourth in real plus minus carl anthony towns is 16th this is kind of funny too tyus jones is 15th um like you said he's probably going to lose a bunch of minutes to Derek rose which is just insane to me um one last thing on the timberwolves i'm going to steal something from bill simmons are we sure Tibbs is good? And that's not even a hot takey question at this point, probably. I could this be a matter of just his focus is too split? What if you had him yeah, just was, assume the head coaching about, duties? Yeah, I, I want to just say on as a coach because I think we already effectively railed on his <laughs> front office abilities. Do you think he's still a good coach? No, and, man, that's <laughs> that's almost. I find myself saying that's too mean too many times during this segment (laughs) it's my whole thing is the situation he walked into has not said anything or has not inferred anything good about his versatility as a coach because 
I don't think you look at any of these players, the younger ones, and say that they've improved since he's no. arrived. I, it's just, and now how committed is he even to player development? It looks like Derrick Rose is going to receive minutes at the expense of Tyus Jones. We've now mentioned Nunnally and Diop and uh, Josh Okogi. How are those guys going to fit into the rotation, if at all? I don't. I definitely don't. We always have a tendency to overrate coaches who are having success in the moment, but he took on a unique situation that looked like a little bit of a bad fit when you saw all the youth, and it's not done anything good for his reputation. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I, <laughs> and I'm going to say maybe it's too mean too, but I just don't know if he has adapted to the game in the way that he should um, for Minnesota to continue to be or to improve. I, I'm, I'm rambling at this point. I think it's time to move on to the Grizzlies. Um, their over-under is interesting to me, and I'm, I'm a little surprised that we disagree on this one. They're set at 34.5. I have them over. I actually think they're a sneaky playoff contender. I, I do think that they're going to miss the playoffs, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're up in the mid forties um, this season. I'm taking the over just because I, I think 34 and a half is just so low. If Mike, Con- I was going to say if Mike Conley's healthy. If Marcus Gasol's healthy, um, I, and Jaron Jackson blew me away in summer league. And I think there's, I, I think those two guys can play together. Uh, Jackson and Gasol. Kyle Anderson was a good signing. I think they might play him too much at the three. He's more of a four, but I think he helps at either one of those forward spots. I think their biggest hole is probably a shooting guard. Um, Wayne Selden can log some minutes there, but I, I don't think they have a great answer. Dylan Brooks maybe could play some two as well. But to me, it comes down to if Conley and Gasol are healthy, adding Kyle Anderson to those two makes this team, I'm going to say probably around a 500 team. They have the biggest variance window, in my opinion, of anyone in the Western Conference, maybe of anyone in the NBA. I think you could very, I think you could easily see them entering the playoff picture, but you could also kind of see them being the third worst team in the West as well. I, I'm with you on everything you said about the concerns. I would, I actually really like Dylan Brooks, someone who I think can play the two, showed some signs as a pick and roll decision maker last year. You're getting Mike Conley back. Let's not forget that Gasol is a million years old, though. <laughs> Jaron Jackson That's- Jr. probably needs some playing time at the five, I would think. And I don't know how how often you're going to be able to get him over there. Your, your shooting, though, is the bigger, like just the biggest issue flat out. Um, you have guys, like you have all these secondary creators. And a lot of people have talked about how they don't have enough. Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson, uh, those guys are going to be able to pitch in. The same goes for Garrett Temple, even, in the half court is that on-ball setup, man. Losing Tyreek Evans actually isn't huge in that regard. It's the shooting that really concerns me. You look at Kyle Anderson, Kyle Anderson shooting 33.7% from three on afterthought volume for his career. Temple has shot the ball okay, but he's only cleared five three-point attempts per 36 minutes twice in his career. Trusting Marshawn Brooks feels wrong. Uh, Wayne Selden is the straight-to-video version of Wayne Ellington, and I don't know how much that's really going to do. Nice. What's that? That was kind. Yeah, I know. Um, And I actually like Wayne Southern. I'm just saying you don't have – you don't look at this team and see this high-volume three-point shooter 
And I, I think that's going to be an issue for, for their offense. I'm super high on Jaron Jackson Jr. He was, take this for what it's worth from someone like me, he was second on my board for the draft behind Doncic. And I think he's going to be great for them. But this is a Grizzlies team that could still pivot its way into a rebuild midseason. I don't know how they do that. I'm not sure who wants to trade for Marcus Saul. Dealing Mike Conley would be pretty difficult with three years left on his deal. I went with I went with the under though, just because the West is too brutal and and something has to give. And it's also to me a leap to expect both Gasol and Conley to remain healthy for the entire year. Yeah, I think that probably is a little bit of a leap, the health thing. I'm with you on Jaron Jackson, by the way. I think he was my number two guy in the draft as well. And he even looked better in the summer league than I thought he would. Maybe, maybe the answer for him. Um, I think you said that he needs, they need to find a way to get him minutes at the five. And I agree. If Mark Gasol just plays like high twenties and you give all those backup five minutes, to Jackson, do you realize what he, you just said? <laughs> well, where, I mean, you think he's going to be well over 30 minutes a game this year? If they're trying to win, why do you really think playing him under 30 is going to keep him happy? And apparently he's super high maintenance. He's already kind of unhappy. That's true. He only played 33 last season though. That's true. And over the last five years his average is uh 33.6 so maybe i undersold it a little bit maybe you keep him at 30 you give the other 18 minutes at center to jackson and then maybe play him like 10 at power forward kind of what the jazz are going to do with Derek favors but i agree with you you need to you need to play jaron jackson at center uh not just to see what you have there but i also think he'll he'll be very very good at center um do you think he could turn into kind of this face-up guy i think he'll eventually get there yeah, I absolutely think that. He did some stuff on off the dribble in Summer League that was just uh, jaw-dropping. Um, little name drop. I sat next to uh, I'm Bickerstaff, their coach, at the Utah Jazz Summer League for like half of one game. And he didn't talk to me or anything, but one time I, I got his attention and just talked to him for a little bit about Jaron Jackson, and they were stunned by how good he looked too. Seeing him up close and personal, um, I think he absolutely has the face-up stuff that you're talking about right now, which is something that I didn't think, at least not this early, that I would I would see signs of that. But it was very clearly in play for him. I think he could be very, very good. Do you think he'll, uh, he'll start from day one right over to Michael Green? Or do you think that's I, still a question? Uh, if it was up to me, I, I would definitely start him at the four. And like I said, just kind of do what the Jazz did. Just play him almost nominal minutes at the four and then give him a bunch as the backup five. Um, really the first super exciting young guy they've had in Memphis in quite some time. Do we have anything else on the Grizzlies? I do not. All right, let's jump to the Lakers. <sighs> this one's hard too, man. Uh, that sound you just made is exactly how I feel. 48 and a half. I'm taking a very... Very painful under. Same. I just (laughs) – LeBron James is incredible. I think everyone says he's adding 15 wins. I don't think that's crazy. Um, I think he probably adds somewhere between 10 and 15 wins. I think Lonzo Ball will be better. Brandon Ingram will be better. Josh Hart. um, Kyle Kuzma might be a little bit better. That being said, they were they're, they're still pretty young. All those guys, they weren't great last year until the second half of the season. But I think a lot of that had to do with Julius Randle. Um, and then the guys that they signed after they got LeBron, they were kind of a running joke. But they, I think they earned <laughs> being a running joke. They added a lot of guys that I don't think 
helped them a ton, but I'm, I'm still agonizing over this just because they did add LeBron James. And I do believe in some of those young guys. So I could easily see them eclipsing 50 wins. Um, but I just feel barely more comfortable saying under on this one. I'm with you there. The, I don't think people are talking enough about regular season LeBron James. Here's that's that's a good point too. Yeah. Here's the scenario for me: is either the Lakers are fighting for a playoff spot, in which case, even if he goes ham, it's not going to be to this huge gain in the wing column, or they're going to comfortably be in the playoffs, in which case they're probably going to give him some rest throughout the season, maybe limit his minutes more than Cleveland did because they're not winning a title this year. It doesn't, I don't see a desperation trade in their future. Maybe if it looks like they're not going to make the playoffs or maybe if they're able to sandwich Luol Dang into a blockbuster trade as a result, they're not playing for this year. And that's not even an insult. The talent around him doesn't look like it fits. Maybe it works. I still think Brandon Ingram is going to be a star. I'm higher on Lonzo Ball's ability uh, to be an off-ball shooter than a lot of other people are. I really like Josh Hart. think he's spectacular. I'm lower on Kyle Kuzma than everybody else, surprisingly. You think I'm he a- might be the player yeah. I would really like. I, I I think there's just a lot of interesting things to watch. I don't, I'm don't. i not seeing them get to the 50-win mark I, because I don't see them chasing it. Nothing that they've done since signing LeBron James intimates that they care about this season. And maybe that is kind of oversimplifying things. I I don't actually have much to add though, because it seems this was a hard one to pick because LeBron is LeBron is LeBron, (laughs) but they're not a team that's trying to get to 50 necessarily. And if they do, LeBron James deserves the MVP award. Yeah. And I'm sure he'll have a case for it regardless of what happens. I do hope he plays center. Um, It seems like he's probably going to warm up to that idea. I don't know that they have the wings who can help him, who can pitch in defensively which I don't think he's going to want to defend fives. There are probably some fours he doesn't want to defend. He played 54 possessions at center in Cleveland last year. They had a 146.3 offensive rating during that time and a plus 42.5 net rating for cleaning the glass. But when you look at his other three years in Cleveland, 16, 17, 16 possessions at center, 15, 16, five possessions, 14, 15, two possessions. I'm very curious to see how interested he is in playing the five and then how it looks because they don't have that player it's not Michael Beasley it's not Kyle (laughs) Kuzma so everyone could stop it's not Brendan Ingram yet maybe if he fills out more they don't have that other player who can help him guard uh bigger opponents that he's not going to want to face on a possession by possession basis that Ingram Kuzma LeBron front court is going to be I feel like they have to get to that at some point. I think it's going to be really fun to watch, but it could, like you said, be a disaster on defense. Maybe the answer is you just run a, a two, three zone. And um, I don't know which of you probably put Kuzma in the middle in that, in that case. And you hope that LeBron and Ingram can kind of get some pseudo chase down blocks coming from the corners. Um, so maybe that's one solution to that, but that's, they're going to have a lot of non-defensive players. Um, when they do that. But I do think that I'm, I'm with you. I think they need to try LeBron at the five because they're going to be, that could be extremely difficult to defend. Well, and um, also I, look at their fives. It's McGee and Zubak right now. And uh, Maurice uh, Ragnar, if you want to throw him in there. Yeah. Um, who do you like more as a prospect, Ingram or Ball? Ingram. I like them both. I just, I know Ingram's three point volume wasn't high last year. I think he was under two attempts per 36 minutes. But the fact that he improved his three point percentage and I just watch him. And this isn't an original thought. I know Zach Lowe has said it. I know a few other 
basketball minds have said it, and I'm no basketball savant. He just seems to have a great feel for the game. It looks like he gets to his spots on command, and as soon as he kind of settles down when you're looking at him pull up over guys, he, he's going to be really good. And the fact that he can get to his spots is just a really big deal to me. Finishing 67.3% around the rim last year, that's a good number for him to be at at this stage of his career. And while I know that he attempted uh, just a low number of three-pointers, he also shot 43.4% on long twos, which accounted for a greater share of his shots than three-pointers did. They were about 20% of his shots. That's a good number to be at. I'm assuming, are you, you're with Ball? Yeah, I think I'm still with Lonzo. I like both of them a lot, and I think LeBron is going to make Ingram better. Uh, I think he should probably make Ball better too. But my thing with the next two or three being one of the top five passers in the NBA. The way that he sees the floor and how quickly he moves the ball is just, even when he was at UCLA, the first few times I watched him, I thought, man, I haven't seen a guy play like this maybe ever. He's just constantly looking ahead. I, I love the way that he passes. I love the way he sees the floor. I also think he could be one of the best point guard rebounders in the NBA, and he's he's a pretty good defender too. His, his block and steal numbers are nuts. Impressive. I think he has a chance to be truly elite as a point guard rebounder and as a passer. And I just don't know if there's any one area where Brandon Ingram, I see that path to, you know, one of the very best in the league. But I I do like both of these guys a lot. And I think, um, I don't know how aggressively the Lakers have pursued trades or fielded offers for either of those guys. But I, if, if their, if their plan right now is to keep them, and develop them with LeBron, I think that's the right play. And I think that's maybe, yeah, I think that's maybe where Cleveland went. Um, I don't want to say wrong because <laughs> they obviously won a title, but just the, the degree to which they prioritized uh, now over the future, I think hurt them a little bit. And I think maybe LeBron understands that now because it seems like he's more willing to be patient than he was in Cleveland. They better not be. I don't want to see these younger guys losing minutes at the expense of Rondo, Beasley, or, or Stevenson. And Stevenson and Rondo are a bigger risk there than yeah. Beasley, obviously. I don't want to – if they're really about this youth, youth movement and the long-term plan around LeBron, it better show in the way that they structure their rotation. And we'll know on opening night, I think, if, if Rondo isn't starting, then I think it's clear that they're serious about working the long haul. That'll be very interesting to pay attention to. Um, all right, jumping to the other team in Los Angeles, a team that I, when I look at their roster, I'm just kind of confused. This is another team that I don't really understand their direction or their vision, other than maybe they're just trying to start over in a year or two. Uh, now that Jerry West is there, I think they might try to rebuild here pretty soon. But it's the Los Angeles Clippers. Their over-under is set at 35.5. I took the under. On this one, I'm going to let you start this time, though. I'm with everything you said. The direction is confusing. You do look at their roster, and they have what seems like 17 or 18 playable guys right now. And Playable, but like nobody that really stands out. Yeah, they don't have a direction. The backcourt is clogged in the weirdest way possible. And to make, to finalize their official roster for opening out of the regular season is actually going to be really difficult because I think they're going to have they're going to have to get rid of someone who or make a move that's really just uh, not detrimental but it's just a guy who can actually I think play in someone's rotation 
they are set up nicely to make a really good midseason trade. Patrick Beverly's expiring. Uh, Teodosic's expiring. He's going to be a restricted free agent, expiring essentially. Avery Bradley only has $2 million of next season's salary guaranteed. Lou Williams' contract, the final year isn't guaranteed, and he's only making $8 million uh, after next season in the second year of his deal. There, you, you throw that in, Wes Johnson's expiring contract, Tobias Harris, Marcin Gortat, you have a lot of nice salary matching pieces. And so if there's a free agent out there, maybe it's Leonard in Toronto, maybe it's Jimmy Butler in Minnesota, they can make some competitive packages there. The goal, regardless, I think has to be to kind of come up with a backcourt pecking order and make sure that uh, Evans and Shea Gilgis-Alexander and, and Jerome Robinson get their share of the reps because you are rebuilding, even if you're trying to compete now. You're not in the title conversation. They're going to have loads of cap space next year, uh, but but I think we should expect this team to look drastically different at the end of the trade deadline or after it, rather, and that's why I, I went with the under for them as well. Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well. A lot of playable guys, nobody that I'm really super excited about, with the exception of maybe Tobias Harris. If, Who I always Mar- forget is so young still. Yeah. Like he's been in the league forever. He has been in the league for, what, six or seven years now? Maybe 60. He, I don't know. He came, in, <laughs> he came in as an 18-year-old, I believe. And he's, yeah, he's he just finished his age 25 season. So they're still, I mean, he's basically barely entering his prime. Um. I don't really have much else to add to the Clippers. Apologies to Clippers fans if you were expecting more. They're going to be fun to watch, though, if you're just a basketball nerd because of the topsy-turviness. With all the guards that they have, like you mentioned, Shea Gildress-Alexander is a point guard, but I wonder if he's going to have to log minutes like as low as small forward. I hope he does. And it's almost impressive that the Clippers, Clippers assembled this many Again, playable rotation pieces without having a 3 and D wing in there. Bomb yeah. is probably the closest they come, I would say. Some people might say Avery Bradley, too. He has a very interesting career to me, he's though. Also, he's also 6'4". Is that really is he wing status? I know he's some people we throw two. in there. But he doesn't defend up a lot. He defends down. Yeah. He's 6'2". Um, oh, wow. You know- I was two inches off. Oh, my God. He's shorter than you think. Yeah, and he's... Uh, he was one of the worst players in the NBA last season statistically. Did you know of his one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight NBA seasons? He's only had one with a box plus minus above zero, and it was his second to last season in Boston. Um, his overall career box plus minus is just barely over two. He's he's a he's just had an interesting career to me. I've always felt like his reputation was a little bit better than his actual. <laughs> production but like i said there's a bunch of guards there that are gonna need minutes there's him there's lou williams Teodosic, beverly uh gilgis alexander sandarius thornwell who's probably gonna have to be a three um on this team gallinari they have listed as a small forward on roto world but I, he's more of a four to me um he's also only gonna play in like 52 games probably that's true and bob mute is a, a four and maybe even like a small ball five um lots of interesting players i just don't think it adds up to a cohesive uh, push for the playoffs type of a team. All right, the Houston Rockets, 54 and a half. And I actually just switched my call on them like five or 10 minutes ago. I did have them under. Um, and I do <laughs> I do think going from Ariza and Mute to Carmelo Anthony hurts. I just don't know if it hurts 10 losses worth. I, I think the fact that they still have Chris Paul and James Harden there, 
They still have Clint Capella. Um, and I do think that those two guys all did. Um, I see them as we've kind of been talking about the Western conference. I, I, I can see them getting to like 55, maybe 56, 57 wins. Yeah, I'm with you over there as well. The concerns defensively matter. It actually, we've talked about it on the pod, so I won't recycle those numbers, but they were the the difference defensively when they played without Ariza and Bamut to when they played with both of them is actually not that substantial. And it's different because Carmelo Anthony is going to be on the floor. I think he'll find his groove in the role that he tried to play in Oklahoma City uh, better than he did uh, w- with the Rockets. Uh, or flip that. I think the role he was supposed to play in Oklahoma City, he will, he will excel at with the Rockets. He's going to get a lot more wide open threes, which even when he hasn't been the greatest shooter, he's always shot consistently above 40% on those. And that will kind of placate his ego a little bit more if he's going to score a bunch of points off catch and shoots as opposed to taking more contested looks or just not high quality looks. There have been stories written. Chris Herring of 538 wrote a great one about how accurate James Harden and Chris Paul are when they defer. Russell Westbrook isn't that. Paul George isn't that. His role is going to get easier. You can work some things in, stagger minutes where he leads second unit, heavy lineups. Uh, Also, there'll be more room for him to drive off pump fakes they didn't have in Oklahoma City, and that might help sort of sate his desire to operate on the ball. The bigger question will be, what happens when you play the Warriors? What happens when you close these games? Uh, is he going to be in the lineup? And if he is, what does that mean? Does it mean James Ennis isn't playing? Does it mean Capella isn't playing because you need Tucker and Ennis on the court to make up for Anthony? There are going to be some interesting issues. I think we're going to see the Rockets kind of forfeit a bunch of wins compared to last season. I do think eventually they'll be the second best team in the West. And the, the final point for them that I'll make, that I'll make is, is keep, keep an eye on keep DeAndre, an eye on Melton. DeAndre Melton. I think he's going to be really good for them. He, is, he was... When you look at what he was kind of able to do as this uh, player who is uh, 6'4", and his defense, he's going to be able to defend up, I think. Uh, while he was at USC, he averaged 2.8 steals and 1.5 blocks per 40 minutes. That's Those are fantastic numbers from someone who uh, is 6'4", and, and so I think he could wind up playing a, a role for them. Yeah, I like Melton a lot, too. He was a prospect that was really interesting to me when I was preparing for the draft and I was surprised that he fell as far as he did. Um, all right. I'm going to move on to the warriors because the rockets, I, I think they get talked about a ton. So I, I don't think we're going to do a goal. This one's actually pretty hard for me too. I just went with the under because they already <laughs> seem to have fell, fallen into a bit of a regular season malaise this past season there's a chance it could be even worse this year in terms of we just we realize the regular season doesn't matter for us. DeMarcus Cousins isn't going to be healthy until January or February. They'll probably rest Curry and Duran a bunch of games. Um, I could easily see them getting to mid-60s or high-60s, but I, I just went with the under here because I feel like this is a team that's completely overplaying in the regular season. Yeah, it's, I don't know if they might still be the best team in the West when you look at what happened with the Rockets and their roster. I, there's not what else are we supposed to say about them? They probably do need to just make sure, or maybe they, I mean they just won a championship, so no, they, they don't need to make sure. But you want, I feel like they kind of checked out almost too much on defense last year at points, us particularly in transition. Again, it ended up not mattering, so I don't even know that I could say 
too much there. The something I found interesting though is those Draymond Green at center lineups weren't these like stifling arrangements last year. In 700 possessions with him at center, according to Clean the Glass, the Warriors had a defensive rating of 116.9, which is and that's weird. In the fourth percentile. Their offense was, of course, better than that, 119.1. Just something to kind of keep an eye on when you're looking at this roster. And maybe also just the bench shooting. They don't have a ton of these shooters. They still do need a microwave score. Maybe they think that's going to be McCaw if they resign him. Maybe Jamal Crawford ends up there. They're still, they're basically, they look unbeatable. And I don't know that they'll be too locked in for the regular season. And so that. Uh, that number feels a little bit, a little bit high to me. I want more Jordan Bell minutes. That's the last thing I'll say about the Warriors. I hope he starts. I've I liked what Kevin Looney did for them in the playoffs, but I kind of hope he starts. That Jordan Bell ends up starting at the five while Demarcus Cousins is out. Yeah, I think they have passing at pretty much every spot if they start Green and uh, Bell at the four or five. Denver Nuggets forty seven and a half. I'm taking the over on this one. Um, I think one of the reasons they, I mean, this is not a me going out on a limb. One of the reasons they missed the playoffs is Paul Millsap missed so much time. Um, I think hopefully Mike Malone will fully trust Nikola Jokic now. Uh, it didn't seem like he ever quite got there in the last two seasons. Um, they did lose a little bit of depth this summer, but they kind of had to, <laughs> to under the tax. So they traded Wilson Chandler and Ken- Kenneth Fareed. Um, but I came around on Will Barton, as we've talked about. And I actually, yeah, I actually think Isaiah Thomas is kind of a nice pickup for them. If he's just like a 18 to 20-minute heat check guy off the bench, I, I think that offense is going to just be absurd this season. Again, I'm not really going out on a limb here. Um, but ultimately, I, I, just, I really like this roster. I like Murray. I like Harris. I think everybody knows how I feel about Nikola Jokic. Um, if they can stay healthy, this is the year they finally kind of get over the hump. Do you know what the offensive rating was of their new starting lineup? Murray, Harris, Barton, Millsap, Jokic. I'm going to say 120. North of 132. Whoa. <laughs> uh, didn't play a ton, uh, 135 possessions. I'm interested to see what happens defensively as well because a lot of people have Barton as the three, but he spent more time as their point guard last year than he did a- as this wing. And you can have. Harris defend up, but Harris, I know is six four. I didn't get his height wrong, and he's not um, this like super long player. Always been better defensively than you'd expect. But with Jokic and Barton, and then Murray's kind of okay defensively. That's something that could be touch and go. They need a wing to just. They need a wing with a boomified stock. That's the. There you go. That's our made up word for this podcast. <laughs> boomified, uh, a lazy one apparently. I don't know why it came out of my mouth. Michael Porter Jr a rookie don't know how often he's going to play or even if he's going to play with uh, following his latest injury is Malik Beasley going to get actual minutes. Uh, Can we see Torrey Craig kind of take a few steps forward? I do not want to see Trey Lyles at the three. I don't want to see Juan Hernan Gomez at the three either. Although you probably have to at this point. Yeah. It's going to be hard for them to find that wing with a boomified stock though. If Michael Porter jr. Turns into this red shirt freshman. Not freshman, rookie, excuse which, me. Yeah, which it kind of looks like might happen. I'd be surprised every, if he didn't. Yeah, every time I hear, like, okay, another Michael Porter Jr. surgery, then there's some video of him shooting hoops like a week later. Um, seems like this has been going on for two years now, so I don't really know what to expect. 
from Michael Porter Jr. But if he if he gets to the point that everybody kind of thought he was before his freshman year at Missouri, then they may have gotten the steal of the draft and the sort of the wing depth that you're talking about. Although I think he's there's an argument that he's more of a four too. They just have a bunch of guys who are fours that can maybe play some three in a pinch. Porter, Lyles, Hernan Gomez. Um, so yeah, they're a little short on wings, which is something that's. I think he not- moves like a wing more. So he's not like a Millsap or a Hernan Gomez to me. When you look at how he cuts or or even his release off the catch, I think he yeah. could. I think he he's- could be an everyday three, and it not be something that's viewed as oh, you need to play him more at the four. Yeah, I'm more confident in saying he can play three than like Trey Lyles. Um, but I still think there's there's a part of me that would rather see him at the four. Uh, I just because I I think I I'm that way with a ton of players. I'd rather see him I'm playing down. There. I get that. Um, I would say if, also Jamal Murray's the. I'm sorry if you were going to make another Nuggets point. Go ahead. No, go for it. I, I don't understand the rush for people to say that this team still needs solutions or option at point guard. Going after these bargain no, bin deals like Isaiah good. Thomas is. I think Jamal Murray's the answer. I'm there. I'm sold. Great. Um, I. It, you were going to say something about his defense and he does need some work there, but offensively he's already, um, uh, yeah, he's the answer. Damian Lillard medium. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe even like full Damian Lillard, if he continues to develop over the yeah, next, so now he's Damian, he's Damian Lillard medium rare right now. <laughs> yeah, just needs a little bit more time to sizzle. I like that. Um, all right, let's move on to our final team of the day. This Wait, is gonna make he, you the team that's going to make you look like a fool too. We both took the over on the Nuggets. And uh, neither of us feel good about it, though, because for them to get the 48 wins well, is a lot. Or Doc just changed them to the under. That was me on accident. Now you fixed it. Um, Dallas Mavericks, 34 and a half. I made the bold prediction in the mailbag last week that the, the Dallas could drinking, yeah. So I feel obligated to get, to go with the over here. I don't feel terrible about it, to be honest. Um <laughs> Just because I think Luka Doncic could be really good. I, I've given a lot of shout-outs to Jacob Goldstein in this podcast, but I'm going to give another one. He has another tool where he took the box plus minuses of players in overseas leagues and translated them to what they might look like in the NBA. And I believe Doncic's was like almost plus three, which is really good. Um, I think he has a chance to be a plus rookie Right out of the gate. I think DeAndre Jordan's going to help them a lot. Um, Dennis Smith should be better. There's, I'm kind of in the same boat with Dennis Smith as I am with Darren Fox, where, like I said earlier in the podcast, I don't really know if I'm in or out on him. Um, but I think there's just enough to push for 40 wins. So I'm, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable saying over 34 and a half. I just don't see it for them. And I think Luka Doncic is going to be fantastic. A plus rookie, as you said. But when you're entrusting so much of the offensive share and touches, we're assuming, to Dennis Smith Jr. and Doncic, there's going to be more warts there. And Dennis Smith Jr. might end up being the larger concern. I know you're not supposed to read too much into how players fared during their rookie season. And Smith did shoot uh, 60.6% at the rim, which is... Which is fine. That's a great harbinger. I think he should be fine in in that sense. But a true shooting percentage of forty seven point one is not good. Uh, pr- problematic to put it kindly. He was 
inefficient when making decisions and, and shooting out of the pick and roll. He committed turnovers on 16.3% of his pick and roll possessions, uh, effective field goal percentage of 39.1 in pick and roll situations. He's kind of in that, I'm more confident in De'Aaron Fox's uh, trajectory than I am Dennis Smith Jr.'s, and that's what holds Dallas back a lot for me. I'm also not sold on the DeAndre Jordan addition. It gives them a reliable pick and pick and roll diver. I don't know how much he's going to impact their defense when they don't have a bunch of these guys who are going to help out on the perimeter. It almost feels clippery when you kind of look like it. You saw that their defense wasn't as good with him on the court last year as it was in years past because the personnel around him wasn't as good. And I think he finds himself in a slot right now, especially with Wesley Matthews coming off another injury where he would need to be the anchor, the defensive fulcrum. And I don't think he's that type of player. He's over 30 now too, and that factors into it as well. So I I picked the under there and they're 34.5. And where you feel really good about picking the over, I feel really good about picking the under. So someone's going to look pretty foolish after this podcast or at the end of the year. This might be our biggest divergence of this opinion. The Bucks. Um, oh yeah, the Bucks was a big one too. The Mavericks last year, their second most used lineup was J.J. Berea, Yogi Ferrell, who's gone, Devin Harris, Dirk Nowitzki, and Dwight Powell. It had a plus 19.4 net rating in over 200 minutes. Um, I posed the question on Twitter the other day, which team do you think is most likely to thoroughly outperform expectations? One of the answers I got was from some, I don't know, I don't remember who it was, but they said the Mavericks and their explanation was, we're going to see just how much Rick Carlisle was tanking last year. They deliberately played really ineffective rookies. A lot of minutes last year, um, specifically Dennis Smith, Maxi Kleber played a lot. I think there are some good lineups they can get to, like that one I just laid out. If you just plug in Luka Doncic instead of Yogi Ferrell, I think that could be a pretty effective lineup. Um, this this one would kill spacing, but Dwight Powell and DeAndre Jordan as your front court with like um, Doncic, Berea, and maybe Wesley Matthews at three or something. I think there are some interesting lineups with this team. And I do think Rick Carlisle is still one of the best coaches in the NBA. And if they're trying to win as opposed to just trying to get as much exposure, you know, for Dennis Smith in terms of developmental minutes, um, they should be better. Now I'm not, (laughs) I'm not going to be stunned if they fall in under 34 and a half, but I'm also, you know, like you said, I'm not, I'm not super um, uncomfortable going over on this one. Harrison Barnes would be a player to watch for them too. How is he going to, how are they going to use him if, if you are going to give a, a large portion of the offense of control to Dennis Smith Jr. and Luka Doncic? Dirk Nowitzki is the perfect, he's, he's turned into this plug and play star, which is just, talk. we've talked about superstars transitioning to their role player, Twilights. No one's one done of- it better than him. Maybe Vince Carter, but I would say Dirk Nowitzki's done an even better job. Yeah, he's been incredible at that. Um, All right, we've now done all 15 Western Conference teams. We did all 15 in the East. In the last episode, if you hadn't heard that one, just go on the podcast feed and find the episode that was immediately before this one. Um, So we've now poured over all 30 over-unders. Should we run through our West standings real quick before I do the the, uh, final closing? Yes, uh, the top four we have is the same. So why don't you speak for both of us for the top four seeds? I have, and I guess you have too, Warriors, Rockets, Jazz, Thunder, and then we have a little bit of a difference. I go Pelicans 5, Nuggets 6, Lakers 7, 
Timberwolves 8, Spurs 9, Trailblazers 10, Mavericks 11, Grizzlies 12, Clippers 13, Suns 14, Kings 15. I have the Nuggets at 5, the Lakers at 6, the Pelicans at 7, the Spurs at 8, the Trailblazers at 9, the Timberwolves at 10, the Grizzlies at 11, the Mavericks at 12, the Clippers at 13, the Suns at 14, and the Kings at 15. So our our bottom three were the same as well. Just a little bit of shuffling between 5 and 12. which, like we've said many, many times, is that's kind of going to be the nature of the West. The difference between the number 10 team and the number 3 team could be pretty small, once again, for the it second year. It could be the number 13 team and the number two, 3 team at yeah, that point. It's, it's, yeah, this, the Western Conference is insane. Um, if you want to talk to us about any of our piping hot takes from this episode, you can find Dan on Twitter at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. I am, of course, at Andrew D. Bailey. The show is at Hardwood Knox. The sponsor is at NBA underscore math. As always, uh, if you have not left a rating or a review, go ahead and do that. Uh, We love to see those. And those numbers have actually been ticking up over uh, the last few days, which is cool. So thank you for those of you who have already done it. Um, If you have friends or family who don't listen to the podcast, uh, you know that there's something missing in their life. So make sure you uh, get them to subscribe and they will appreciate you even more than they already do now or if they don't appreciate you right now then they will once you get them to listen to Knox. um until next time we leave you with the shout out to ben Udry and kyle anderson lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath we do it right too with up to 40 percent off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our refresh for less kitchen and bath event That's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, shower heads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.